0: We can't actually get rid of all the deaths, the lesser deaths of life. The storms will come and the trials will come. We can't take away all those lesser deaths, but I can help you believe something that will cause them proportionately to not unnecessarily hurt you any longer. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to Encouraging Words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's Word. In this episode, we talk about the difficulties of life. Do the difficulties go away when you become a Christian? Think. Evaluate. Learn. Lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James, showing us that it doesn't get easier... You get stronger. Thanks for listening. We're worshipping under the theme, we're studying under the theme, it doesn't get easier, you get stronger. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul and 275 people on the ship with him had just shipwrecked, they got safely to shore, and here we read, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness, they built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw that the snake was hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off of his hand into the fire and suffered no ill effects, and the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, well, maybe he's a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island, and he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. and Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were also cured by Paul. They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. This is God's word. The Apostle Paul and the 270 other people on the ship that was bound for Rome, that was with him, that were shipwrecked, Uh, they arrived safely ashore on the island of Malta just as God had promised to them through the angelic messenger that he he shared the message with Paul about all this, just as he promised it happened. And they, they come ashore Malta. And Malta is... Uh, We looked at the map last week. It's this little island uh, that's part of the province, the Roman province of Sicily at the time. It's about 50, 60 miles away from Sicily and about 150 miles southwest of like the boot of Italy. So it's kind of off on its own. And okay, so who are the people who are there? Well, fortunately, they actually come out and greet Paul and his travel companions and they're not... They're, the natives are not um, primitive. So they're not like what you might think of as like islanders, far off islanders. They are people who are descendants of the Phoenician explorers. And therefore, they actually don't speak the native language of the Roman Empire, which is Greek, but they do speak a language that is approximately close to what Paul would have been familiar with, which was the, the language called Aramaic. And so there was, they were able to communicate with one another. And so they get on this island, and the islanders have been really uh, gracious and, and generous and hospitable to them, but they're building these fires so that the passengers, who remember have been shipwrecked and swimming to the coast, it's cold, it's, it's probably late October. Um, they're cold, they're wet, they're building some fires to warm up and dry off, and as they do this, the Apostle Paul is helping build the fire. He takes a pile of sticks and twigs and stuff, and he's about to throw it on the fire, and out of the, the pile of sticks, a viper, uh, which is driven out by the heat, shoots out and latches onto his hand. And the Maltese islanders immediately think, this guy's cursed. You know, like, here he is. He just survived a shipwreck and, uh, like, absolutely should have died. And a couple hours later, he gets bit by a poisonous snake that undoubtedly, it's, it's deadly and indigenous to that island. They know he's going to die as a result of this. And they think he's cursed. He's cursed. Actually, what they say specifically, I don't know if you caught this earlier, in verse 4 it says, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. So, they have this conception of a Greco-Roman goddess at the time, Justice, who writes all the wrongs of life. And uh, they assume, you know, the Apostle Paul must be a murderer. Why? Because while he escaped shipwreck and death there, uh, the goddess Justice must have sent a poisonous stake to take him down and avenge him as a murderer. Now, It's interesting to think about these island people with little, maybe little contact with the outside world. They very clearly have some kind of system of, like, moral accountability. And this is, you know, I think this is important for us as Christians, especially if you're born and raised in a Christian home. Um, I think I had this kind of naive perception growing up that Christians have some kind of monopoly on morality and that people who are not Christian or are other religious have this, like, inherent... Amoral or immoral, you know, atheist outlook on, and it's just not the case. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Why? Because the Bible teaches that there's this thing called the natural knowledge of God. The natural knowledge of God means that there's some kind of moral code from God is printed on every human heart with a semblance of right and wrong. And therefore, the conception of who, like these islanders, would be, according to the Bible, is they're not non religious, they're natively other religious. And they have a morality that is guided by something less than the true God. That's where they're at. But they nonetheless have concepts of moral accountability. And so when they see the Apostle Paul bit by this poisonous snake after surviving the shipwreck, they say he's, he's, you know, the religion of mankind is what? The God or gods punish the wicked and reward the relatively good. And therefore, if this is happening to this guy, he must be getting punished deservedly by the gods. And that's not at all the case. Now, what they find out is the Apostle Paul sort of shakes off the snake. It goes into the fire and he's perfectly fine. And it's at that point like the pendulum, the public sphere pendulum just swings completely. And like, wait a second, maybe he's not a murderer. Maybe he's a god. If he can survive this kind of attack and this type of onslaught. Now, um, we don't we don't know exactly how Paul responds to them, but actually something very similar happens earlier in the book of Acts. If this story, if that sounds at all familiar, thinking Paul's a god, actually, Acts 14, and Paul's first missionary journey, he's in this place called Lystra, and he's there with Barnabas, and they cure this crippled man, and everybody looks at him in Lystra and says, ah, the gods have come down to us. These, this must be like the manifestation of Zeus and Hermes. And, and at that point, we're told, Paul rebukes them. He will not allow them to give him unnecessary credit. He will not plagiarize credit from the true God. And he sort of rebukes them. Now, Luke, Dr. Luke, doesn't tell us how he talks to the the Maltese people here or how he corrects them. What I can guarantee you is he corrected them. He did not allow them to continue to think that he was some sort of God. And actually, Luke, at the end of the book of Acts, he does and says a bunch of things that are just assumed at this point. There's no way he's already explained a similar incident before. There's no way that he would allow people to think that Paul was a God. And so I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing Paul said, no, I'm not a God. But I've been able to tap into some supernatural power. Why? Because I do know the true God and I'd be happy to introduce you to him. Now, this text, at least the verses that we read earlier, ends, interestingly then, with not only are the people of Malta particularly hospitable to Paul, but the chief Roman official of the island, his name is Publius, he's like the governor of the island, Um, he is also very hospitable to Paul and his traveling companions. He invites them over to stay at his place for, we're told, three days. And actually, it's in this time that Paul finds out that the father of Publius is suffering from, it said, fever and dysentery. We don't know exactly what this is, but there is absolutely historical record of something called the Maltese fever. And it was something that we know developed at that time and wiped out a good chunk of the population that was due to some kind of microbe or contamination in goat milk. But it's probably what this guy has. And you notice what Paul does. He says, can I go in and see him? He prays to God on this man's behalf and then he lays his hands on him. Now, do Christians today still have power that God can work miracles through us? And, and we said, well, it's, it's actually really complicated. But what we said is that God can still bring about at least near miraculous things and the strategies are often the same. What's the, three, the three-pronged strategy here is this. First of all, Paul has to ask to go into the life of a hurting man. Secondly, he's got to be dependent on God and pray on his behalf. And thirdly, he's got to get involved and place his hand on the man. We're going to come back to that under our applications later, but as far as like how does social healing take place, those are the exact three steps right there. You have to care, you have to depend on God, and you have to put your hands on and get involved. Okay. Um, but, you know, so it, Paul... Cures the father of Publius and now, you know, word spreads quick on the small island. Every sick person on the island is coming to him and Paul ends up staying there for three months and they're very generous. And by the way, we're also not told by Luke that there's some grand evangelism strategy or effort on the island. Guess what? It happened. How do I know it happened? It doesn't say that because that's Paul's whole deal in Acts. He doesn't go anywhere without telling about the goodness of Jesus Christ and Luke at this point doesn't even need to say it again. I guarantee you he proclaimed a resurrected Savior of grace. And therefore, what we find then is, look, here's the thing. Again, on Malta, driven there, why? By unseen forces. Driven there ultimately by the hand of God. This wasn't on their route. They just ended up there. Driven by the unseen forces of God, we see the Apostle Paul shared healing kindness with the people. He shared a resurrected Savior and a saving gospel with the people. And the people were grateful and responded with generosity, which, by the way, is the, sort of the natural response when people really under, understand the goodness of God. Now, what does this mean? i got three lessons from this text tonight for you. The first one is we're just going to call it Immunity to the World that, this, that the Gospel of Jesus Christ gives you. And it works like this. The, the Bible stories are fantastic um, and true, but, but they're different from the like Disney-flavored, fictional fantastic stories of Earth, in part due to their radical honesty. And what I mean by that is they don't always end like happily ever after. And, uh, you know, you might think, if you were just writing this, like, as, as fiction, you might say, okay, after all of Paul's journeys and all of Paul's struggles and all of Paul's opposition, at the end of the book, all of his enemies are going to fall at his feet and he's going to live happily ever after. Nope, that's not at all what happens. In fact, what we've said in in recent weeks is the last chapters of Acts are primarily watching Paul navigate the inevitable sufferings of life. So what has Paul faced in recent weeks? We said he got beat up, he got falsely accused, he got almost assassinated, he got wrongfully imprisoned for several years, he got shipwrecked heading to Rome, he somehow survived that, and as he's preparing a fire for the prisoners that he helped rescue, he gets struck by a viper. Like, the guy cannot catch a break. Why, why do bad things have to happen to Paul like this? And the answer is, look, the answer has something to do with Paul's not cursed. He's deliberately struggling as a Christian. Now, what does that mean? All of life is a struggle for everyone, but the Christian life is a deliberate struggle. And that's different. What do I mean by a deliberate struggle? Well, you see this all the time throughout the Apostle Paul's writings. You notice how many times he talks about, like, a runner preparing to run a race or a fighter preparing their body for a big fight? The struggle is not what's out on the field. The struggle is not what's out on the court. In the athlete's mind, the struggle becomes before all of that. The struggle is not the opponent. The struggle is, are you going to get up and be in the weight room at 6 a.m. to hit the weights and run the sprints? The struggle is, are you going to, at the dinner table, deny yourself some unnecessary sugar or carbs or fat? The struggle is not the opponent. The struggle is, are you going to go out and party with your friends the night before a game, or are you going to get back, get in bed before your curfew so that your body is in optimal condition for the battlefield the next day? See, it's the struggle for the athlete mindset is not what's out there the next day. The struggle is the deliberate struggle of self. And the Apostle Paul is constantly using that analogy. Why? Because he says that is what the Christian struggle is like. It's willful and it's deliberate. In other words, look at it like this. Do you think it's coincidence that the Apostle Paul somehow is the most coherent and most composed person at his own legal trials? Do you think it's coincidence that the Apostle Paul goes from a prisoner on this ship with 275 other passengers to the end of, in the, in the middle of the storm at sea, he, he essentially is functioning as the captain of the ship giving orders? How is the Apostle Paul continuously shaking off the vipers that Satan keeps throwing at him in this world? It's because he understands something and he believes something else that everybody else doesn't fully grasp yet. He understands that the gospel of Jesus Christ has essentially made him immune to this world's threats. He knows that death can't really hurt him. He knows that the criticisms of others can't really hurt him. He knows that nothing in this world can truly hurt him. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, life hasn't gotten easier for him. He's gotten stronger, though, because the Holy Spirit has convinced him to trust the promises of Jesus Christ and that has made him, like, viper-proof in the world. Um, You might say, like, well, yeah, that's Paul. Paul's got direct access to God. Paul's got all these advantages. He's got all this, you know, perspective and does this happen in the modern world? You know, uh, one of my probably heroes of faith is a German Lutheran pastor from the mid-20th century named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived and worked during World War II he was an anti-Nazi dissident who was imprisoned for, because he would not recant. He would not stop calling out the oppressive Nazi regime from the abuses against Jewish people, against the Christian church, against all of that. He could have recanted and just gone free. He said, no way. And for that, what did he get? He's publicly executed. And still today, Bonhoeffer is recognized as one of the like, leading voices in the world as far as how does, what role does Christianity play in the secular world? And again, he's got this great book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is one I'd encourage you to to check out. But actually, I'm going to make a a note from a different book here. It's a collection of his works, uh, and it's it's referred to as The Letters and Papers from Prison, which was published in the, the 50s. He's got this great line here where he says, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Who thinks like that? And who lives like that? Death, death, my own death, is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Bonhoeffer is not trying to get through life safely. Bonhoeffer is not trying to live his best life now. Bonhoeffer is not building up storehouses here on earth. Bonhoeffer is investing in eternity. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. How could could these guys face death like this and not be afraid? Because they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They really believed it. And it transformed them into people who said things and did things that others around the world study 70 years later, or in Paul's case, 2,000 years later. Um, It's it's interesting. In, In years of, like, pastoral counseling, one of the things that I've found is I often get to the point where I'm talking with somebody about, you know, what, what is, why they're so anxious, why they're so depressed, why whatever, and one of the things that we eventually get to is, and one of the questions I've learned to ask, is what about this, whatever this is that you're anxious about or depressed about, what about this are you most afraid of? Asking people what they're really afraid of in life is, is really revealing, and, and you ask them what they're afraid of, and almost invariably it works the exact same way. They'll say, well, if, if this happens, then this. Like, if this negative thing happens, then I'm going to feel negative or be negative or people aren't going to like me. And, and then I'll say, okay, well, you know, life is temporary, so it's not going to last for forever. So what if that does happen? Then what? And they'll say, okay, well, then this. And, and what I end up finding is the problem underneath the problem underneath the problem, the bottom problem is always death. People are afraid of the little deaths that lead to the greater death. And so what I'll have to explain to them is, you know what? You and I, we can't actually get rid of all the deaths, the lesser deaths of life. The storms will come and the trials will come and the snakes will bite and that's inevitable. And actually the bigger death, I guarantee your life is going to end that way too. We can't take away all those lesser deaths, but I can help you believe something that will cause them proportionately to not unnecessarily hurt you any longer. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that matter, when you, see, I, the gospel of Jesus Christ helps you believe that death is a supreme, look at what a transformational thought that is. Death is a supreme festival on the road to actual freedom, to the life that really is life. When you get a bunch of people who are no longer afraid to die and no longer just holding on to this world, they are capable of extraordinary things. In fact, when you start living with that type of immunity in your life, you start becoming a force for healing the world, which is my second point. The yield also can heal. Uh, in his third chapter of The Road to Character, David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist and uh, like New York Times best-selling author, uh, he, he laments the loss of the concept of sin in the modern world. So like outside of churches, people don't ever talk about the concept or the idea of sin in the world anymore. And he says, the reason that's so uh, terrible for society is he says, the concept of sin is the thing that good people struggle against. Now, I might take issue with like how he tends to define good people and and so forth. But he says something here that's really interesting and helpful in this section. I'm gonna read it to you and, and we'll unpack it. He says, the concept of sin is necessary because it's radically true. To say that you are a sinner is not to say that you have some depraved stain on your heart. Remember, this is his definition here. He says, it is to say that like the rest of us, you have some perversity in your nature. We want to do one thing, but we end up doing another. We want what we should not want. And he sounds an awful lot like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 here. He goes on to say, none of us wants to be hard-hearted, but sometimes we are. And none of us wants to self-deceive, but don't all of us rationalize sometimes? No one wants to be cruel, but don't we all blurt out things and regret them later? No one wants to be a bystander, to commit sins of omission, but in the words of the poet Marguerite Wilkinson, we all commit the sin of unattempted loveliness, which is a great phrase, by the way. Understand what they're saying there even if you somehow never committed any transgressions, even if you never behaved poorly or behaved wrong, which is not true, all of us do that, but even if you somehow did, all of us would have to admit that we've had ample opportunity for good that we've just failed to do. And what that means is all of us have fallen short of what we were meant to be. All of us are contributing to this death in the world. In other words, death is natural in a world where ego and pride and self-centeredness are also very natural. Every one of us in life, every life is essentially a moment by moment opportunity to either say, okay, how do you, how do these people, how am I going to use them to serve my desires or how do I lay down my life and how do I lay out my resources to serve these people? And you know full well which one most of us naturally tend to choose. And so, the Christian mindset is unique. Why? Because we said it was a deliberate struggle. The Christian willfully struggles against the self, not because it saves us. We've already been saved by the grace of God. We don't struggle against the self for our salvation. Jesus has gifted us salvation. We struggle against the self to say thank you to our gracious Savior who took the only snake bite that could ever really harm us. You know, immediately after the fall into sin, God promised that an offspring was coming from the woman who would do what? Crush the serpent's head even as the serpent strikes his heel. What that means is from the moment humanity rebelled against God, God planned to send his son into the world to give an antidote to the sickness of self-centeredness. And Satan struck that into the world but God had an answer. God was going to send his son to crush the serpent's head, undoing the devil's work. But it, was, it would come at the cost of Jesus absorbing all the venom of hell in our place for our sins. So why did Jesus sign on to do that? Simple answer, he didn't have to do it. He did it because he so loved you and me. And when you have faith in that, when you believe that God loves you that way, undeservedly, Faith in him inoculates you to the world. It's interesting how venom inoculation works. You notice it doesn't cause snakes to stop biting you. It means that when snakes inevitably do bite you, you're proportionately less affected by them. And if that's true, see, it means you're a primary candidate to jump into the jungles of life and rescue those who haven't yet been inoculated. Because if it's true, that you don't have to worry about you anymore because God has done everything necessary and his hands are on your life and he's gonna take care of you. What that does is it frees you up. If the God of the universe cosmically provides for you, if he's paid for your paradise with his blood, then you are capable of unabashedly attempting loveliness. Now, I think we all understand that's not the typical goal of the Western world, right? In fact, if I was going to put the goal of the Western world, and a lot of research backs this up, into two simple words, I would say discomfort avoidance. The Western world is trying to avoid discomfort. In fact, I, I arrived at that conclusion because years ago I read a book by uh, Philip Yancey in which he quotes a, this kind of like renowned orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. Paul Brand. Uh, he spent the first part of his career working in India, and then he moved over to the States and started working in the States, and he said there was a dramatic shift. In how in the nature of the people in how they approached suffering. Here's what he said specifically. He said in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level. They had they had decent lives comparatively. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any that I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. What does that mean? Means in other cultures, it's not that pain isn't painful, it's that pain doesn't derail your life goals. But in the United States, if the goal is pleasure and the goal is comfort and the goal is personal attainment, the goal is your best life now, then pain is not only painful, but it 100% throws you off track of the meaning and purpose of your life. How's a Christian mindset different? If you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to suffering, it means three things. Number one, it means that because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice in my place, I have the promise of eternal glory in heaven. In other words, does, does happily ever after come? Yes. Not in this life. This life will probably end in sickness and in death, so far as I can tell. Happily ever after does come, though, Unfortunately, it's for all eternity. Because of what Jesus does, the Apostle John says in Revelation 21, there's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears because the old order of things will pass away. And that's what you get for all eternity because of the gospel. The second thing you get is you get meaning and purpose in your life right now with whatever suffering you face. You get, become like kindred spirits with Christ in his suffering. And actually, even more than that, you get resources to face suffering. Why? Because look, if you have become inoculated if you've been inoculated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you might still feel the pain of the fangs, but you will have the comfort that comes from knowing that there's no poison that can actually kill you. And the third thing that the gospel actually gives you is that idea that if you are freed up because God himself is caring for every moment of your life, you are freed to love and serve others ahead of yourself. Just look at the Apostle Paul's life. The apostle, like, he's got some stuff on his plate. He's got a fairly big agenda in life. And he's gone through a ton in the process. Um, you know, like, the apostle Paul is a guy who, he knew the Lord Jesus had saved him eternally. He knew the promises that Jesus had made to him. But he's got stuff going on. He's suffering through shipwreck and other kinds of tortures. He's got a mission to eventually get to testify to Caesar. And yet, what does he spend the next three months of his life doing? tending to the natives of Malta that he doesn't even know. One of the number one reasons why you and I don't invest ourselves in the lives of others more often is because, you know, I've got so much suffering of my own that I'm so concerned with. And I've got such a big agenda and so many important things to do that I just, I don't have time for the natives. The Apostle Paul did. He's got a busier schedule and bigger missions than any of us. All right, here's my final point. This point, gospel cannot be stopped. It's less about just the the text that we studied, it's more about actually the end of, coming to four years, the end of the book of Acts. And we actually read the end of the book a little bit earlier. It's, it's interesting that, you know, the last verses say that the Apostle Paul was under house arrest for two years and the final statement about him is what? The Apostle Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's sort of abrupt but it's kind of ironic and poetic. He's under house arrest, but he preaches the gospel without hindrance. He's pushed down, but nothing can actually stop the gospel. It's furthermore interesting, what happened to Paul? Like, isn't that, wouldn't that be kind of an interesting detail? Like, we don't know. Why doesn't let Dr. Luke record that for us? Does he ever get a fair trial? Does he ever appear before Caesar? We're not told. You know why? Dr. Luke intentionally leaves it out, and here's why I think he does. Because it doesn't matter. This book isn't about Paul. This book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to move forth and there's nothing that you or anybody else, else that can do to stop it. There's nothing that this world or Satan himself can do to stop the gospel of Jesus because the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It doesn't really matter all that much about the specific talents of the messengers that God uses. It doesn't matter that much what the political circumstances attached to it all are. What matters actually is that we have a resurrected Savior who is undefeatable, this resurrected Savior always overcomes corrupted cultures, polluted politics, vipers and demons, and wind and waves, and you can't stop him. You can't stop it. The world has tried. It reminds me, so I remember years ago hearing a minister use the analogy of, now this is, this is a little old for some of you, uh, a reference to Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park. It was almost like 30 years old now, but in the original Jurassic Park, There is a quote that is like one of the top, it's in most uh, like top 50 quotes, movie quotes of all time. You might even remember what it is, you remember? Life finds a way. And it's Jeff Goldblum who um, plays this character, Dr. Ian Malcolm, but really every Jeff Goldblum character, the characters play Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum doesn't play characters. Every, Jeff Goldblum was the exact same guy in every role he ever plays. I don't know why they just don't name it, Jeff Goldberg or Jeff Goldblum. But the point is, he's Dr. Ian Malcolm, and he says, you know, he's like the contrarian voice. And he's asking about the problems of the island, the potential problems. And he says, look, there are all sorts of things that could go wrong. And the scientists say, no, 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 we've taken care of this. We've only cloned females, so they won't reproduce and get out of control. We've controlled the environment. We've controlled uh, the variables. We've controlled the power that they have. And he looks at them and he says, life... uh, It finds a way. And what he's saying, this has been used to say like, maybe that's a statement on like evolution or whatever. What it actually just means is that there are forces in this universe that are bigger than your careful but flawed and finite logic. And there are things like life that you and I in this world are not big enough to stop. Life will perpetuate itself. And what that minister was saying about about Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, Luke is actually saying about the gospel in Acts nothing can stop it. You can kill all the preachers, it'll continue to move forward. You can uh, privatize and disincentivize, and Satan can demonize, and you can't stop it because the gospel never stops, and nothing can actually stop the gospel. Have you ever noticed? I remember learning this years ago and I thought it was absolutely fascinating that um, there is not a single other religion on the planet where 80 to 90% of the adherents don't all reside on one, maybe sometimes two continents. Christianity, where's the hub? Where's the central hub of Christianity? Do you know that today, about 20%? Of the world's Christians are on the continent of Africa, and that's growing pretty quickly. The same thing is true in Asia. What, 20% of Christians in the world are currently on South America? Maybe a little less and shrinking than 20% are in Europe, and the rest of them are where? Right here in America. Where is the central hub of Christianity? It's the only thing that can penetrate any culture. It's the only thing that can penetrate any language. It's the only thing that can penetrate any worldly opposition because you can't stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is about the fact that you cannot stop it. It's the single unstoppable force on earth. And here's, look. Here's what this means about how you structure your life. Moving forward, we as a church, leaders, keep this in mind, but you as individuals, how you structure your life, what's the foundation of your life? Some of you who are not quite sure exactly where you stand with the gospel of Jesus and you're not sure if it's pretty much kind of the same as the rest of the religions of the world or if it's necessarily for you or if you have to be part of a church or that kind of thing, here's what I'm going to say. This is the one unstoppable thing. Make sure everything in your life is structured on the one thing that you know cannot be stopped, which is the living gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.